You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Steve Stewart-Williams. Steve teaches psychology at Nottingham University's Malaysian campus, with a special interest in evolutionary psychology. And he is the author of two um, popular books. The first one is Darwin, God and the Meaning of Life, How Evolutionary Theory Undermines Everything You Thought You Knew, published in 2010. And this year, 2019's book is The Ape That Understood the Universe, How the Mind and Culture Evolve. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Ayanna. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's my absolute pleasure. So let's dive right in. So you're an evolutionary psychologist, and your interest is, I would say that uh, the first, what well, the first half or the first two thirds of the book does is take a gene's eye view of human psychology. Yeah. And do you want to talk a little bit about um, the genes I view, which I guess was really became popularized by uh, by um, Richard on, Dawkins, right? Yeah, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> what is wrong with me? <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with my my stuff above the neck. My genes have gone very wrong somewhere along the way, but was popularized by Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene in 1979, I think he published that. Yeah, 76, um, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and very good book. Can you, uh, what, what was most, what's been most surprising about that viewpoint? How has that revolutionized our understanding of evolution and evolutionary psychology in particular? Yeah, um, so it's been really influential and, and revolutionary, I think, in a number of different ways. Um, the basic idea uh, of the genes I view is that a biological evolution can be best understood as selection among different versions of the same gene. And, and the genes that get selected um, are the ones that have effects on their owners that increase the chances that their owners are going to pass on their genes. So, for instance, a, a gene that gives a lion sharper teeth, for instance, might have a better chance of getting passed on than a gene that gives it less, less sharp teeth. teeth. Um, a gene that uh, gives a peacock a more colourful or more ornately patterned tail, that might be more likely to get passed on than one that gives it uh, a smaller, less ornately patterned uh, tail. Uh, it's ultimately, the, the key idea is that it's ultimately uh, the genes that are being selected, and genes are being selected um, to the extent that they're good for themselves in competition with other genes. And what that does is, that this is one of the most sort of revolutionary implications, I think, is that it, it suggests that organisms are shaped to be what are, what are sometimes called gene machines. So in other words, they're shaped so that they look like they're designed uh, 
to do whatever they can to, to pass on their genes into the into the next generation. And the rationale for that's really, really simple. It's basically just that if you imagine that a gene came along and that gene actually decreased the chances that its owner was going to uh, reproduce or otherwise pass on its genes. Well, that gene's not going to stick around in the gene pool for long at all. That gene is going to pretty soon uh, evaporate from the gene pool, and it's just going to leave genes that have the opposite effect, genes that actually uh, increase their chances of sticking around in the gene pool. And, and that's the reason that, that organisms get shaped to, to look like they're trying to pass on their genes. So that, that's step one. And step two? <laughs> yeah. Uh, step two would be applying it to psychology, um, and I think the way that I find it most useful to, to say how this, this view of life can be applied to psychology um, is to first of all get people to imagine something that's a lot more intuitive. And that's uh, to sort of ask, so, so why would it be? So, so it's to look at um, the, like how natural selection shapes anatomical structures in other animals. So, for instance, um, like I mentioned, uh, the lion's teeth uh, earlier. So, so why do lions have these big, sharp sharp fangs? Why are they useful for the lion? Uh, why were they selected? And the answer, of course, is that um, they better enabled uh, the lion to be able to capture its prey and to devour its prey. Uh, why do gazelles have uh, super fast legs? The answer to that would be that um, they increase the chances that a gazelle is going to be able to run away from a lion. So, so those are functional explanations for these traits. Now, an evolutionary perspective on psychology would take that same explanatory framework, that adaptationist style of explanation, and it would apply them to the human mind and to human behavior. And, and I'll just give you a few uh, simple examples to make the point. Uh, one would be, so why do, why do we evolve the emotion of fear? Uh, and the answer would be that it motivates a certain kind of behavior. Uh, adaptive behavior, and that behavior is to escape from threats or, or to avoid threats in the first place. Another example might be, why did we evolve uh, sexual desire? Uh, the answer there would be that it motivates certain kinds of behavior that before we invented birth control reliably resulted in us producing offspring. And then one other example might be, uh, why did we evolve the emotion of parental love? And the answer there would be that, it, again, it motivates behavior. In this case, the behavior is to look after those offspring that we, that we produced in the, in the earlier step uh, so that one day they, they can start this whole process all over again from scratch. Right, right. Let's take a look at it, um, some of the slightly more, more slightly less country, uh, intuitive concepts. Sure. I had David Sloan Wilson on this podcast um, a few weeks ago. And mm -hmm. so we have talked about group selection theory on this on this podcast, and yeah. you debunk that in your book. Uh, tell me why. Sure. Um, can I say first? I probably I might not describe it as debunking it. That sounds <laughs> pretty final. And and I, I would say I definitely lean on the side of, of not being uh, an advocate of multi level selection, but I am less certain of that than I was. I don't know, five or ten years ago. Um, I think largely because of David Sloan Wilson, he has not persuaded me that he's right, but he's persuaded me that to be just a little less confident that I'm right uh, about about rejecting multi-level selection than I used to be. But nonetheless, like you say, I, I do uh, reject multi-level selection. I think probably it's not a useful way to look at the evolution of our species and specifically the evolution of behavior such as altruism. Uh, and I guess for two main reasons. Uh, one of them is that I think uh, that, that a lot of the examples that, that people like David and others give of behaviors that necessitate 
group selectionist explanations. Um, I don't think do require it, and I think they're actually more plausibly explained in terms of a, an, a version of inclusive fitness that, that doesn't include group selection. So I'm thinking, for instance, of behaviours uh, such as what's known as uh, strong reciprocity, and that's the idea that, that people often, like people living in big cities, for instance, they will often give change or give directions uh, to complete strangers, even when there's no one around to see it, so I can't have any reputational benefits. The people that they're helping are not genetic relatives, so it couldn't be a product of kin selection. Uh, and those people, um, they're never going to see them again. So it couldn't be like reciprocal altruism. It couldn't be kind of uh, you help me, I'll, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine later on. It couldn't be that. So a lot of people argue that that kind of behavior, strong reciprocity, which is definitely common, that suggests that we need to say that our, that our species has been quite strongly shaped by group selection, selection for the good of the group rather than the good of the individual and the individual's kin uh, or in terms of reciprocity. Um, now, a few reasons I, I think that's not the best way to explain it. One is, I guess, just as much as the person that you're helping is not a relative, um, they're also not actually a member of your group in any, I think, psychologically meaningful sense. So, so in that sense, it doesn't really support group selection for a start. But also, I think, I think it's probably better explained, more realistically explained, in terms of evolutionary mismatch. Uh, and that's the idea that the environment we find ourselves in today, in a lot of quite important ways, is different than the environment in which we spent the bulk of our evolutionary history. And one important way is that. Through most of human history, people were not encountering strangers left, right, and center. We didn't live in populations as vast as the ones that, that many of us, most of us, in fact, inhabit today living in cities. And so most of the people that came into our social spheres, they were potentially people that we would meet again. They were potential reciprocators. They were potentially uh, – any interactions that we had with them could potentially boost our reputations, or if we messed it up, it could potentially tarnish our reputations. I think in that context, we're going to have a general tendency. It's likely that selection will favor a general tendency to, to put our best foot forward in terms of being cooperative and kind and not unnecessarily selfish and mean and um, because in the past that was useful. In the past that boosted our reputation in meaningful ways. In the past that uh, would have opened the door to subsequent friendships and, and reciprocal alliances. So that's, that's the first part of the story in terms of why I don't buy group selection. Second part is that if you just look at human nature and human behavior, I just think we don't particularly look like we are group selected. At least we don't look like we're strongly group selected. I think if we were strongly group selected, we wouldn't need to have our uh, a lot of kind of groupish behavior that we engage in incentivized so strongly. So, for instance, uh, we wouldn't need tax collectors because people would be just as happy to pay their taxes as they would be to, uh, I don't know, go out for a nice meal or go to a restaurant. Uh, we, wouldn't need, we wouldn't need conscription because uh, people would be just as happy to give up their lives for the good of the group or to risk their lives at least for the group uh, as they would be to eat and drink and be merry. Um, I think most of our behavior, it, looks, it doesn't look like we're just like really selfish. Um, we, we can be very, very kind, um, but the extent of our, like the circle of our altruism and, and the circle of our kindness just kind of naturally is not as wide as it could as it could be. It extends to relatives, especially close relatives. It extends to friends and, and allies, but it doesn't easily extend further than that. You know, you can't extend it culturally, but it naturally sort of falls short of what we'd expect if we were strongly group selected.
Mm-hmm. And you you said in the book that you think that certain extreme examples of altruism, such as people dying for their country, um, mm. are a, a side effects of a tendency rather than rather than they're they're kind of the tendency in excess. So what is yes. selected for evolutionarily is that tendency, and some people have have too much of that tendency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I think the tendency to you know to, to dive on a live grenade to help your comrades, for instance, or to, to just more generally to give up your life uh, for unrelated comrades. I don't think that's something that was specifically selected. Um, it is something that occasionally happens, but I don't think it's a behaviour that was specifically selected in the way that I don't know sneezing or laughing is more specifically selected. I think, like, like you say, I think it's probably more likely to be just one example of a more general trait which very plausibly was selected, which is just that we form deep friendships and, and alliances and, we, um, and we're and we loyal to, to friends and loyal to members of our immediate groups. Um, most of the time that doesn't lead to extreme behaviour like throwing yourself on a grenade. In fact, in fact that's very, very rare behaviour. That's why, we, why it grabs our attention so much when we hear about examples like that. And um, it's, it's quite rare, but the, the more general trend that it comes out of uh, just being close to friends and allies. I think that's what was plausibly selected. Mm, mm. Um, you talk in the book a lot about the interaction between culture and natural selection. So yep. um, before we get into the stuff about memes and memetics, yep. um, you say that in recent in recent history, evolution has not not only have we not stopped evolving, but Arguably, evolution has speeded up. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so there are some quite interesting examples of that. I mean, the, the traditional view was that basically as, as our culture appeared, uh, we kind of insulated ourselves from, from the harsh forces of nature. And a lot of folks argued that that meant that natural selection was no longer acting on us. Um, it seems much more likely, though, uh, and, and, and more than just seemingly likely, actually there's good evidence that actually the kinds of uh, cultural uh, situations we create for ourselves create new selection pressures for us. Uh, and the classic example being the evolution of lactose tolerance in some populations that have engaged in, in dairy farming. So basically what happened um, is that so, so populations did this. They started... Um, availing themselves of the meat, the, uh, the, the milk rather, of, um, you know, ungulates, uh, uh, cows and sheep and uh, goats, depending on where in the world it uh, is taking place. Once that happened, it just automatically created a selection pressure for an ability to digest lactase, which is the, the sugar in milk, to digest that right throughout the lifespan rather than just uh, while, while you're nursing as, as an infant. Um, and that pretty quickly evolved in, in every culture where that selection pressure emerged. Um, that's a really good example of, of rapid recent evolution. Uh, and part of the reason that it's it's rapid, and, and in fact, in certain cases, more rapid than it would have been in the past, is because we have these larger population sizes. And so there is more scope for new mutations to come in that could potentially be useful and then to be selected by these new selection pressures uh, created by, by our cultures. Right. We're also shielded, though, from certain... Um, yep. pr- natural um, pressures that we used to have. And you talked about there's um, 
one there's one biologist who calls this the survival of the weakest. I can't remember sorry yeah. who that who that is. Um, so, for example, Timothy Taylor, I think, yeah, right. For example, I would definitely have been eaten by a lion because there would not have <laughs> right. been a strong pair of very focal glasses available um, uh, in indeed, earlier yeah, me epochs. Too. <laughs> yeah, the lion would have, eaten, would have eaten me as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so, so short sightedness is something that uh, would have been hugely disadvantageous, uh, at least in its extreme forms, um, prior to the invention of glasses. And, and like everything, it's partly genetic. So basically, um, so, so you're right. So some selection pressures have been removed. And that can have evolutionary consequences as well. So basically, it's no longer hugely important that we have really, really good vision. We can get away with not having it. Uh, that means that any genes that contribute to developing not so good vision, they are not going to be selected out of the gene pool. And so they can potentially uh, make their way into the into the gene pool. Potentially, if that would happen for a long enough period of time, at least in theory, that could lead to a, a sort of genetic erosion of the quality of our of our eyesight. Um, now, like I said in the book, there's, there's obviously nothing we can do about that. We can't sort of ban glasses in order to make sure that people with uh, genes for short-sightedness are going to go and walk into traffic and, um, <laughs> and take, those, take those genes away from them out of, out of the gene pool. But I think, you know, we just have to accept that the longer we live with technology and culture, um, the more dependent we're going to become upon it, not just not just culturally, not just uh, habitually, but biologically as well. Mm. And to what extent has sexual selection been a, an evolutionary ratchet? So you mentioned sexual Jeffrey. Yeah. yeah, you talk about Jeffrey Miller's um, thesis in The Mating Mind a lot in the book. Yeah. Um, and as I understand it, Miller's thesis is that most of our most of our cultural and intellectual pursuits are sexual are motivated by sexual signaling i mean not consciously motivated but are are, yeah. um, are used for sexual signaling as jeffrey puts it put it to me recently he said we are all sapiosexuals yeah right yeah the whole development of intelligence is for is for sexual display and mate selection. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, language as well. I think he argues an uh, important function of that, morality, um, music, art, humour. I think those, those ones are probably the main ones, right, that he argues uh, evolved primarily through sexual selection. Um, and, and his view on that is that they're, like you say, they're ways to display one's fitness, so to display... Uh, that one has uh, good enough genes, you know, few enough mutations and genes that are resistant to the local pathogens and parasites to the extent that we can grow these uh, psychological features. Uh, yeah, so that, that's his view on that. Um, and it's an interesting view. I really, I really did enjoy his book, uh, The Mating Mind, and it really was one of the first things that woke me up to the importance of sexual selection. And I do think it is important. Now, I think probably it's not as important as he says uh, in that book. I personally would would not favor a sexual selection view for most of those traits. Or at any rate, I wouldn't, I wouldn't favor a sexual selection only view for those traits. And actually, to be fair, I should mention that in the case of intelligence, language, and morality, uh, he does think that they're partly sexual signals, but they're also partly survival devices as well. So they're, they're not just about, uh, they're not just products of sexual selection. 
Um, I think for, for music and for for art, I think I personally, I don't think that those are products of sexual selection. And in fact, I don't think they're adaptations at all. So in Chapter 6, I, I get into this. So, so like I talk about his, um, his views in Chapter 2, I guess, in particular, where I'm just sort of laying out a Darwinian toolkit of all, all the different theories that are available. So I mention his theory, and I say that could be applied to art and music and, and these other human, uniquely human traits. I also mention group selection theory and say that if that's legitimate, that could uh, explain them. And I mention uh, the byproduct theory. Uh, and say that these, this is another alternative that could explain these things. Uh, and, and that's the one actually that I favor, the, the byproduct explanation coupled with a kind of cultural evolutionary view for music and, and art. Uh, and the reason I favor that, so I just, there, there are various different arguments people have put against a sexual selection account of, of music and art. The main reason I think probably it's not a product of sexual selection is that I think it just doesn't, music and art just don't look like adaptations, whether they're sexually selected or not. Um, most uncontroversial adaptations, you find them in most members of the species, and, and they're pretty similar from individual to individual and from culture to culture. So, so I'm thinking of things like, like fear, for instance, and, and laughter, um, jealousy, romantic love, just, just lots of these traits. They, they do vary across cultures to some degree, but they're pretty recognizably present in most individuals in most cultures. Um, I don't think that's the case, though, with, with music or art. I think that uh, music is well, – well, for a start, most people don't do a lot of music making, and, and most people don't spend a, a lot of time making or cons even consuming art. Um, so that would be one thing. And another thing is that they just vary so much from culture to culture and, and different subcultures and from different uh, different times and different places. They're just, there's just so much variance. Um, it seems much more likely to me that they're, they're primarily products of culture rather than products of uh, sexual selection. You know, sexual selection may come in a bit. I think we probably have sexually selected motivations to try to impress other individuals in various different kind of ways. Um, and, and music and art can be ways in which we do try to impress other people. But we also try to impress other people, uh, potential mates, by, I don't know, uh, surfing and skateboarding and, and uh, various other things that, that are not plausibly um, products of sexual selection. So, yeah, so I think it was, it was worth looking at. Sexual selection, like I said, it's a very important theory. And whenever you find a trait that is um, not obviously about survival and, and burns up heaps of energy, definitely worth trying a sexual selection explanation on the side. But yeah, ultimately I favor a, um, a cultural explanation for those ones. And I think with intelligence and with language, I think that sexual selection may play a small role in the evolution of those things. Um, in fact, I think it probably does, but I think they're primarily products of, of other selection pressures. I can tell you about those if, if you like. Um, yes, tell me about those. Uh, sure. Well, with intelligence and language in particular, I think uh, something I've been thinking about quite a lot lately is that I think that a lot of traits can be favored by multiple selection processes rather than just one. And I think that's probably especially so for, for traits like intelligence and for language, which are just so – they're just like general purpose adaptations. They're just so useful in so many different spheres. Um, so I think multiple selection pressures would favor them. So intelligence, for instance, we can use our intelligence to sort of figure out smart ways to survive. We can use intelligence and language to figure out uh, mutually beneficial ways to cooperate with other individuals. Uh, we can use our intelligence and our language to, to figure out ways to woo members of um, our preferred sex. Um, so there is a 
potential sexual selection aspect there. We can also use these things. We can use intelligence and language to to help our kin as well. As in, when we we might say to our our offspring, uh, look, you need to stay away from those long grasses over there. Uh, somebody spotted a snake in there earlier, so just stay away from them and, and don't eat those fruit. Those fruits, by the way, they're they're poisonous. So th- so that would be a kin selection uh, explanation. And I think probably intelligence and language, they're very very general purpose, probably favoured by multiple selection pressures. Uh, including sexual selection to some degree, but not exclusively sexual selection. So I wanted to ask you, actually, talking about sexual selection before um, before we go on to talking a little bit about gene meme co-evolution. I uh, so you don't mention homosexuality anywhere in the book, and I wondered whether you had theories about that exclusive or yeah. what biologists call obligate homosexuality. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I touch on it just in a, in a, a footnote. I did have some notes on it in my, my original notes because it's a really interesting topic, um, but it didn't really quite fit into the book as the structure of the book emerged. It is, it is really interesting though, right, because it, it's an evolutionary conundrum when you first look at it. It's like if, if individuals have an exclusive same-sex sexual orientation, they are very likely to pass on their genes much, uh, at, at a much slower rate of knots, if at all, compared to people with an exclusively heterosexual uh, orientation. So it's a bit of an evolutionary mystery, um, at least to the extent that genes are involved in shaping it. And, and we do know that, um, that uh, sexual orientation is, is partially heritable. So there are genes that, um, that increase an individual's chances of developing that orientation. How, how could that be the case? Now, I think that we don't know the answer for, for certain. That's the first thing I'd say. So there's no definite clarity on that issue um, among uh, the, the people who think about these things. One thing I'm pretty sure about, though, is I don't think it's an adaptation. So I'm pretty confident that it is not a product of, of natural selection or something favoured by natural selection. The, the best-known idea about how it might be favoured by natural selection um, is, is E.O. Wilson's idea that it's favoured uh, specifically by ten selection. And his idea is basically that, so, so you know, the eusocial insects and eusocial ants and bees and wasps, there's a cast of individuals that don't actually reproduce themselves, but they instead help uh, other members of, of their hives or nests uh, to reproduce. And those other individuals are kin. So they don't reproduce themselves, but the genes contributing to that tendency get passed on because uh, they're helping in their relatives, so kin selection. Now, Wilson suggested, so he's, he's one of the experts on that topic, he suggested maybe that applies to um, exclusive homosexuality in, in gay men was his suggestion. He thought maybe they, because they don't have kids of their own, they instead boost the what's called the indirect component of their inclusive fitness. So, so they basically increase their fitness by helping nieces and nephews instead. Is there any evidence that gay men have more nieces and nephews? Uh, no, there's evidence, uh, evidence than that other do, people. Uh, no, no evidence that they don't actually. So I think I think Wilson was wrong. I think um, that the evidence so far suggests reasonably decisively that um, that that's not the case. That uh, they, they gay men also gay women don't particularly have a stronger familial orientation than um, than, than the average uh, straight person. Uh, and also, I don't really think this, the theory makes makes much sense, uh, to be honest. I think it's sort of implausible on the face of it. So if you go back to the use social insects, right, it's not the case that they, the non-reproductive worker insects 
uh, going around um, having sex with each other. And, and if they did, <laughs> it'd be really weird if they did, right? It would be a really strange use of their time. If they're being selected for, for being altruistic toward kin, uh, that, that would be kind of a waste of time. And so it just seems implausible on the face of it. And yeah, like I say, the, there's very little evidence that that actually does that, that it does take place. The one exception I can think of is the Fafafine of Samoa. And there is some evidence uh, that, that uh, certain, certain gay males do actually have more of a familial orientation. And um, I think, though, because that's the exception rather than the rule, that the more plausible explanation for the Fafafine's behavior would be a cultural one um, rather than a biological one that supposedly applies right across the board. If it applied right across the board, there wouldn't just be sort of one society where you find this or, or a handful of societies where you find this. That would be much more common. Mm, mm, yeah. So, yeah, so, so not an adaptation. I don't think it's an adaptation. So what is it then? Why does it come about? And that's when we're getting into more murky uh, territory. Uh, there are a few ideas, none of which has definitely won the argument yet. Uh, one idea is that any genes that increase your chances of developing that sexual orientation, um, they, they're not adaptive when they're in an individual that, that, that is gay. But they may increase the fertility of individuals who have those same genes um, but who, who don't develop a same-sex uh, sexual orientation. So in other words, they perhaps are genes for fertility rather than genes selective for homosexuality, and, and it's a byproduct of that. Uh, that's one possibility. Some evidence in favour of that, um, but that, that idea gets mixed reviews. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, it's at least plausible. There are also non-genetic factors. So one... Uh, you, you probably heard about this. There is uh, some pretty st strong evidence, actually, that there's a birth order effect yes. for male, yes. yeah, yeah, for, for male homosexuality. So basically, each subsequent brother is slightly more likely to to be gay than than the earlier uh, the, the earlier brothers. It just just applies to brothers for some reason. Now, as I understand it, that's quite a, a sturdy effect. We have pretty good evidence that that's the case. Uh, I think the explanation for why it might be, I'm, I'm not sure if it's true or not. It's sort of something along the lines of that uh, the prenatal testosterone associated with developing a, a male fetus um, affects the mother's immune system in ways that um, in subsequent pre pregnancies, her immune system has a different reaction to uh, male fetuses and uh, means that they, um, the, the testosterone will have less of an effect on them in subsequent, um, in subsequent pregnancies. It's, it's something along those lines. I'm not sure if that's true, but there does mm. seem to be a birth order effect. Hmm. It seems odd. At, I mean, it seems odd that that would be the case. I mean, it seems, mm. it seems like um, it's hard to find a, uh, a reason why that would be advantageous. I, my guess is that if my guess is that it's not advantageous, um, mm -hmm. and that it's just that adaptations aren't perfect, and things just don't always go according to our plan, with with plan and quote marks. Well, in quote marks, yes. I mean, I'm very happy that yeah. homosexuality exists. I think it's um, yeah. it would be um, it's a life enriching diversity. Yeah, uh, but agreed. Part of life enriching diversity. I'm so. Um, I'm so inarticulate <laughs> tonight. Um, it's well, maybe, maybe we should tell the listeners. We should tell the listeners it's, it's really late where you are, right? Like it's it's uh, ten o'clock in the morning for me. But oh yeah. is it eleven o'clock at night. It's eleven. Yes, and I am a lark. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, right. <laughs> I definitely have a larkish chronotype. I wake up without an alarm at seven at the latest. So, mm. yes, I'm sundowning somewhat. <laughs> it's late and I'm old. But um, we, shall, we shall persevere because um, I'm really happy that you agreed to join me. And even yeah, though yeah, I sound, sound like a complete blethering idiot, luckily you sound <laughs> very you. articulate. <laughs> oh, uh, well, thanks. Um, then you were saying something I think really interesting there about, um, about uh, yeah, diversity and um, – yeah, uh, the diversity of, of, of different humans and that kind of thing. And, and it's a good point, I think, right? I think it's important to note that even if there's no adaptationist explanation for sexual orientation, that, that has no moral implications at all. That's not to say it's a bad thing in any way, shape or size. It's just... Uh, well, this is true of, of all um, genes I view evolutionary adaptations, right? The fact that something yeah, is... absolutely good for passing on a particular gene does not mean that that thing is desirable, ethical, uh, uh, or something we should be kind of promoting. Exactly. And often the reverse is the case. So, you know, natural selection sometimes favors stuff that we consider morally good, but often favors stuff that we think is, is the opposite. Mm. So, uh, things like uh, violence, for example, is a good example of that. And, and then conversely, um, a lot of this, a lot of cultural inventions, which you might want to say are, they're, they're unnatural and that they didn't evolve, um, are things that are very morally good. So, mm. you know, things like, like medicine and um, a liberal system of ethics and the uh, Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights, etc. Mm, mm. So, um, I, uh, uh, one thing that really, one of the most striking images in your book is. You describe uh, when you were in Borneo, I think, and you saw an orangutan punting who had basically taken, yeah. uh, uh, stolen a boat and <laughs> yeah. um, was punting along in this boat. And you thought to yourself, how weird is it that this orangutan is able to use this piece of technology when he doesn't understand how he or she, <laughs> I don't know how to sex orangutans, um, Maybe you can from a distance, but he or she is sort of uh, is using this piece of technology which he doesn't understand and wouldn't know how to create, how to make himself. And yep. then you had this realization that we are all orangutans rowing boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah indeed, exactly. We are constantly surrounded by. Uh, technologies and, and machinery and stuff that we could never in a million years have invented by ourselves. Uh, and more than that, even like the greatest geniuses of history by themselves wouldn't have been able to invent, uh, I don't know, the, the iPhone sitting on the table in front of me uh, or the, um, well, the, the computer, the laptop sitting in front of me, which has connected me to somebody on the opposite side of the planet. You know, the, the greatest genius in history could never have invented them, that kind of thing uh, by himself or herself. Uh, those things are products instead of, of what's called cumulative cultural evolution. And I think that's it's fair to say that's, that's maybe the, the real secret of the success of our species is the fact that, uh, so yeah, not only do we have uh, culture, like, like a lot of uh, animals have some degree of culture, chimps and whales and, and, and songbirds, etc. But not, on, not only do we, do, do we have that, we also have uh, this capacity for cumulative culture, which is that we can, we can stop our culture and we can, we can add to the common pool of culture, we can tinker with it, and we can improve it over time. And 
slowly but surely through that, that kind of ratcheting process, we end up with um, tools and technology that just are well beyond any of our individual abilities to create, or even in most cases to fully comprehend uh, the mechanisms involved in these things for laptops and iPhones and the like. So it's sort of, it's almost like we are in this bizarre situation where we have technology that sort of, it looks like it was created by beings vastly more intelligent than ourselves because uh, we couldn't have created them by ourselves, um, like, a, like a vastly uh, intellectually superior alien species that created all the stuff, then left it to us and, and disappeared. Um, except that, of course, you know, that's not what happened. It just evolved culturally to be smarter than we are. Mm, yeah. I mean, I certainly don't understand almost any of the technology that I'm using. And if you put me in the middle of the jungle, and if you put me and a group of people like me in the middle of the jungle naked and you had a group of bonobos, the bonobos would definitely survive much better than us. Yeah, uh, well, exactly. I certainly would be of no use. I wouldn't even be able to make a fire. Um, yeah, likewise. I, I, I wouldn't have a clue how to, the first step about how to do that. And the only reason I even think that it might work by rubbing two sticks together is because somebody else has told me that. I would never have exactly. come up well, with exactly. that idea on my own. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and I think no, no person would like, we don't have a fire making instinct, right? Um, mm. We, it's something that we have learned and taught each other how to do over the years. And then, then have kind of forgotten more recently, like uh, that, that knowledge has kind of dissipated among uh, populations that are living in the kind of circumstances where we are now living in cities and with technological civilizations. Yes, in the rain, in the rain shadow of technology. So, um, yeah. yes, where uh, it was actually an archaeologist who talks about that—the survival of the weakest. Yeah, and I yeah, have, that's right. Yeah, I do not have his. I cannot remember his name now, but I will put it in the show. I will find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's Timothy Taylor. Really oh, interesting thank guy. You. Yes. It's, yeah, yeah. So that that'd be worth uh, worth listeners delving into them. Um, so we also, um, there are two things working on us, and you quote Daniel Dennett on this. Um, Dennett says that unlike other species, we are not, um, we are, our, our main aim in life isn't to have as many surviving, as many offspring surviving to sexual maturity and having, uh, giving us grandchildren mm. as possible. Um, which is what you would expect if we were simply entirely ruled by our genes. Yeah. Um, if the if the genes were genes were the only influence on us, and of course there's there's Jeffrey Miller's theory that everything else is or many other things are basically sexual signaling, so we're indirectly using those things to get sex, sexual partners and pass yeah. on our genes, but. Um, we go on sexually uh, signaling past sexual, past menopause, for example. Um, yeah. I'm still signaling. <laughs> so, um, sure. And we also, um, oh, uh, oh, there's another element at, at stake, which is uh, memes. And the uh, I, th I find it very interesting the way that you talk about mimetics um, hmm. Because you say that um, the usual understanding of memes is that 
um, certain memes spread because they appeal to something in human nature or they are useful to humans in some way or other. Uh, but yeah. in fact, the way that we should look at memetics is from a selfish meme point of view, from a meme's eye view, i.e. Yeah. that memes are just replicators whose only aim, quote unquote, is to make as many yeah. copies of themselves as possible. Yeah, exactly. So just like the cultural equivalent of the, of the selfish gene theory, and that traces back to Richard Dawkins as well. That's uh, his uh, selfish meme view. Um, and I think, yeah, I really, I really enjoy that that view. And I think maybe it's onto something. Uh, and the, yeah, so the basic idea. So, like I mentioned, so the, the basic idea of the genes eye view is that the genes that get selected are genes that have effects on their owners that keep them in the gene pool. Uh, the memes eye view says that the memes that get selected within the culture are those that have effects on the people who, who are holding those memes in their brains that keep those memes alive in the culture. And, and often the reason that a meme will stick around in a culture is because it is useful to the individual that holds it, uh, whether in, in terms of uh, evolutionary fitness or just in terms of e everyday kind of uh, definitions of, of usefulness. Um, sometimes they, they're useful for the individual. Uh, sometimes they might stick around because they're, they're useful for the group in which they're found. Um, but the bottom line, I think, according to this, this perspective, is that ultimately they, they have, the memes have to be useful to themselves. So they're not useful to themselves, just like a gene that um, creates maladaptive effects on its owner, that gene's going to disappear. Likewise, with memes. So if, if a meme has some kind of effect on it, even if it benefits the individual holding that meme, even if it benefits the group, if in some way it causes itself to replicate at a slower rate than other memes, then that meme is going to disappear. And, and conversely, if a meme comes along that isn't useful for the individual and that isn't useful uh, for the group, but still is in some way useful to itself, just in the sense that it keeps itself alive in, in the culture, that meme can be selected despite not being useful. I think the, the best example to sort of round the point home, I think, uh, is the concept of, of earworms. So I think everyone knows what an earworm is. Uh, even if they don't know the word, they know what they actually are. They're just irritatingly catchy snippets of, of uh, uh, tunes, ir irritatingly catchy tunes and choruses and that kind I of know. thing. I know. Please, get, please uh, don't yeah. give any examples because no, no I'm example. really susceptible to them and I hate oh, it so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really annoying, right? So I won't <laughs> give any, uh, any examples um, because if I do, it'll, it'll spread to you, right? And then you might start yeah. humming it and it'll spread to somebody else and then they'll start humming it and, and they'll hate you for it. And then um, and then <laughs> all, all your listeners, it'll spread to them. <laughs> yes. Um, even though it's not useful for them, and even though it's not useful for for any group that you care to name, so that's I think a good example of, of how memes, in the final analysis, they need to be good for themselves rather than necessarily good for us or our groups. Right, and some of them are actually damaging. Um, yeah. There were, for example, there have been suicide copycat suicide epidemics. Um, yeah, yeah. After after the publication of Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther, for example. Um, yeah, yeah. And more recently, Kurt Cobain's suicide. Right. And the, the most recent deep dive reportage that I did was also about something that was arguably a destructive meme, which was neonatal mm -hmm. 
medical neonatal circumcision. Um, a meme that spread the idea that circumcision could prevent masturbation was this meme yep. that spread despite not being useful or, or yep. true, but um, was just very successful at um, contagion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It spreads, and, and what's the benefit, right? I, I can't, you know, people have argued there's some kind of benefits, but I don't think the arguments stand up at all. And really, there, there are only costs, I think, uh, in terms of uh, pleasure, that the suffering you inflict on the infant. Yeah. Right. You talk about rogue cultural elements in the book, and I, yeah. I, I like that um, mm. I, idea. There's something. Uh, there's still something very odd to me about inclusive fitness. So I'm going. Mm -hmm. I'm going yeah. back a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, no worries. It's there's this this kind of idea that the genes want copies of themselves to be to proliferate, and yeah. in a sense, they don't care, quote unquote, whether the copy that proliferates is in my body or in somebody else's body. Yeah. And um, so, for example, um, uh, for example, things in my body might be actually damaging to me, but are helping the spread of other people's other people's genes. And you 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 give nipples as an example of that. It's one of my favorite <laughs> passages in the book. Is when you're talking uh, about nipples as a and as altruism machines. I think you call them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the basic idea there, you know, why, why did they evolve uh, in placental mammals? Uh, and um, uh, marsupials as well, actually. Uh, and the answer is, it was well, not to the immediate benefit. It's not in terms of the, like the survival of mm. the individual possessing them, the, the female at least possessing them. Um, it's, it's just to benefit the offspring right. um, by providing them with sustenance. So it's basically uh, for that other individual, and those genes are kept alive in the gene pool because of the benefits of individuals other than the individuals in whom the the nipples develop. Right, and it's um, this kind of inclusive fitness thing. Um, it it feels it's it makes me feel that genes are like the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> right. Um, there are many copies, and it's not right. about the individual at all. It's just about the genetics. But I find that I still find inclusive fitness extremely counterintuitive. Um, yeah. And as you say, I think at one point you say that humans don't make other humans. Um, in a sense, well, we we have offspring, but you don't make little Steves and I don't make little Ionis. Yep. Um, yep. We reshuffle the genes each time. And it's yeah. about, uh, it's in, individual genes may want to survive at the expense of other genes within the organism even. So you have these alleles that um, stack the odds in their favor. Yep. Segregation distorted genes, right? Yes, yeah. that's the, that's the word. That sounds very yeah. Cylony segregation distorted. <laughs> yeah. um, I find so I find the battle, yeah, Battlestar Galactica Cylons a useful image for for how genes work, um, and how yeah, it's 
it's very creepy and weird when you think about it. I, I agree. It's, it's creepy and it's weird and it, and it is counterintuitive. And it, I think it just kind of remains counterintuitive, even after you're really, really thoroughly familiar with the idea. Um, it's actually part of the reason I quite enjoy it. I, I do quite like the way that it clashes with our with our intuitions. I find that quite quite fun. Um, as, as well as just thinking, I think that it is actually bizarre, though it seems to us, it is actually an accurate view of where we came from and, and why we happen to be uh, existing here on this planet. So it's, maybe, it's a bit, bit like relativity theory and quantum mechanics, where it does seem strange to us, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. And in fact, it does seem to be true. Uh, it just seems to be a counterintuitive, counterintuitive for human beings. I, I really liked this, pas- this passage in the book, you say, to get back to kind of memes and memetics. And this yeah. idea of Daniel Dennett's that we are gene meme hybrids. Um, yeah. That hybrid gene meme vehicles or something, he calls it. Um, because you say here, so doing the right thing often means going against natural selection and trying to right nature's wrongs. Evolutionary theory explains much that is bad about the world. It doesn't imply that the bad things are actually good, and it doesn't provide a template for how we ought to live our lives. Um, I th- I think that's interesting. I mean, I am really... There's, there's, there seem to be morally, not, not talking scientifically now, but to complementary dangers in human thought. And one mm. is this idea that that um, because certain things have always, we've done certain, always done certain things a specific way, we have to continue because to do otherwise would be to go against nature. And it's, um, that would be dangerous, uh, or, or even impossible. I mean, there's this contradictory kind of view that it would be dangerous but also impossible which doesn't you know yeah, doesn't make sense exactly. to think about it um if it's impossible there's no problem right right but and there's also the reverse view the blank slatest view that human nature is endlessly perfectible and yeah. that has that has also led to enormous amounts of suffering yep so i like this kind of idea but um it's it's also really odd because how can we actually go against natural selection? Is uh, 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 this is maybe where memes come in, memetics comes yeah. in? Because uh, um, how can we do anything that hasn't been hasn't naturally evolved for us? Yeah, uh, well, I think that I, th- I think we can in a certain sense. I think basically um, as we started evolving our intelligence and our cultural capacity. Um, you know, presumably those things were selected because they were useful. Um, but as as they came online, as, as we became more and more intelligent, as we had a greater and greater cultural capacity, um, we, we became something of an, an open-ended system and our behavior is a lot less constrained th- than it is in most other, um, well, well, in fact, any other species. Um, you know, to, to some degree, we are blank slates. We're, we're like the blank slates of the of the animal world, much more so, not completely, but much more so than any other animal. And with that open-ended system, it does open up possibilities for us that were not metaphorically foreseen by natural selection. 
um, natural selection having given us this couldn't couldn't we in effect came off the genetic leash and there was no immediate sort of way that the genes could um, say hey hey wait a minute this this wasn't what I was planning um, you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff uh, I'm, I'm going to rope you in you know so so genes can't work like that right we we just have to some extent escaped the escaped our genetic heritage. And of course, genes are just one factor among many shaping shaping who we are. So our, our evolutionary history gives us pretty strong pushes in certain directions, gives us some weak pushes in certain other directions as well. But it's not the whole story. And we can, now that we've got this intelligence, we can look around and do things with our intelligence that our intelligence wasn't immediately designed for. Like thinking, hang on a minute, this is... We don't have to do things this way. We, we've got this push in this certain direction, but I think that we would be better off and, and um, happier if we were to do this, that, or the other thing, even though it's going against what natural selection might tell us to do if natural selection had the power to force us to do stuff, which it doesn't. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I, li I, I really like that explanation. Where do memes come into that explanation? Uh, well, memes would be uh, integral to that. So um, as our cultural capacity developed, that was when memes were able to start um, evolving in their own right. So we could have ideas like the one that I just mentioned, um, where we can think, hey, let's do, th let's do things a different way. And then that meme could spread to somebody else, and then they could um, accept it or reject it or, or change it a little bit. Um, and, and sort of cultural evolution took on a bit of a life of its own. And, and as it did, so I think potentially it's pulling us further and further away from being prisoners to our genes. How how has culture, um, how have has cultural evolution? Well, yes, I I'm, I think you mentioned it has. Um, in what? Uh, give me an example of a way in which cultural evolution or or memes or mimetics has um, changed our our genes. Um, so so lactose tolerance is, is one example. Um, that's the one I mentioned earlier, and I think that's that's probably the best established. Uh, example mm, mm. Um, but but other ones there are other dietary ones as well so uh, for instance it's been suggested uh, more, more than suggested it's, there's there's some pretty good evidence that um, in populations that eat a lot of starchy foods like, like all humans eat some starchy foods uh, and more than a lot of other animals but there are certain populations where they have for a long time eaten even more starchy foods and in those populations uh, you have selection for more salivary amylase, which mm. is which which breaks down those starchy foods in the saliva. Um, so that, that's another example of that. There are actually I can tell you my, my favorite example actually is an idea about how we evolved our intelligence and our um, language in the first place. So that that I think is plausibly a product of gene culture coevolution. Um, and the story would start long ago, you know, far far back in the mists of time when our remote ancestors had just a little bit of cultural capacity, similar to what you might find today in, in chimpanzees. Um, and with that with that level of intelligence, that level of cultural competence, um, they, they would begin to develop some some culture, some, some ways of making a living, some ways of extracting food um, and, and the like. Um, once they had a pool of, of useful culture along those lines, that would create a selection pressure for, for higher levels of intelligence and, and a greater cultural capacity in order to be able to quickly learn those things and to be able to use them more adeptly. Uh, and that would slowly shift up the average level of intelligence and cultural competency in our species. Having reached that point, 
um, you would then we would be in a position where we could create more sophisticated culture and, and more of it, and we could learn more of it and, and share more of it uh, with one another. Um, having done that, so so a culture takes a step up. So intelligence and cultural capacity took a step up, and now the culture itself takes another step up because of that. Once the culture has taken that step up, then that ratchets up the selection pressure for intelligence and, and for um, ability to imitate and, and other aspects of, of cultural competence. That selection pressure ratchets up and, and we become even more intelligent, even more culturally competent. We make up even more sophisticated culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so basically our intelligence and cultural capacity are co-evolving with, with our means, with, with the uh, – culture that we that we find around ourselves those two things are um provoking the the evol- each of them is provoking the evolution of the other mm, mm. i so i'm going to ask a, a a few more questions um just drawing attention to some things you say in the book which i um which i liked and i i want to kind of clear i think it would be nice to give a little clear explanation of um, one of them is you say we need to draw a clear, bright line between traits on the one hand and the selection processes that produce them on the other. Yes, so that was in the context of, of my argument against uh, group selection being uh, significant in our, in our species, um, and that's it was my response to a common um, common argument for group selection, which is that we are very that we're very groupish. You know, we we cooperate and um, we, we live in big groups, we cooperate, we like each other, we help each other out. Um, and I think a lot of people jump too easily from the claim that we're groupish to the claim that that groupishness must be a product of group selection. So selection for the for the, for the good of groups rather than for the good of the groupish individual. Uh, and I think that's not right. I think that um, groupishness is very, very plausibly good for the groupish individuals because it basically facilitates cooperation and cooperation by definition is good, good for all involved. Everybody benefits. It's mutually beneficial. Mm. Mm. Let me see. What have we not covered? Oh, there's one, oh, there's one other <laughs> fun thing that I wanted to draw attention to, which is at one point you say that the tenacity of love is an example of evolutionary mismatch. The tenacity of romantic yeah. love. Um, I, I really enjoy the chapters on jealousy and partnership and pair bonding. So yes, could you say could you say more about that? Um, I, I could, yeah. So that's that's quite speculative, but I think plausible. And basically, I was I was talking about the fact that. Okay, so so the background is that I think that our, the fact that we fall in love with each other, I think, is something that is a, is a product of natural selection. I, I think we're just the kind of animal that falls in love with each other from t- from time to time, rather than it being an invention of culture. Um, but it does love does have some puzzling features, and one of them is that it sometimes lasts for much much longer than would seem to be adaptive. Okay, so it, it sometimes lasts. Um, well, sometimes it lasts even after a relationship breaks up. And um, rather, you would think that a perfectly designed Darwinian machine might just, in that in that context, instantly switch off love and immediately uh, pick up again, looking looking for a suitable uh, mate. Uh, and that's often not what what happens. Often, people instead um, become very very sad, and they um, and, and kind of self pitying, and they get sad for for months, some often, or sometimes even for years, if it's like a 
like a very long-term deep relationship. And, and you think, well, why, why might that be? And one, one possibility is that it's a product of evolutionary mismatch. Like it doesn't seem to be useful today because today we live in an environment where there are plenty more fish in the sea. Um, in the, for, like for the bulk of our evolutionary history, though, um, there, there weren't plenty more fish in the sea. There were you know, relatively few other potential partners. And it's possible that in that context, uh, love was shaped to sort of lead us to latch on to mates and potential mates uh, much, much more strongly than, than might be the case today, than, than might be useful today. Uh, but we still had that, that baggage from, um, from, from our evolutionary history. That, that would be my, my argument there. Great. Thank you. Um, and I do have a question also of, um, from Twitter, which I want to ask you because this is um, co- the person asking the question is Cody Moser. Uh, who is a personal friend of mine and was also a previous guest on this podcast. Um, And he is is also an evolutionary psychologist. And Cody asks, he says, please ask about the provisioning versus signaling hypotheses for male hunting. Attitudes are shifting a lot in this currently, and I'm interested in what Steve thinks. Yes, okay. So this is is a uh, really interesting question. Uh, The question there is, why why do men hunt? Um, and the original, the sort of traditional answer to that was captured uh, in a theory known as uh, the man, the hunter theory. And the idea basically was that men hunt in order to provision their wives and their offspring in the sort of context of a nuclear family. Um, and that was that was one of the early ideas, I think, traces back to the 1960s. Um, a lot of people railed against that idea for a number of reasons, uh, one of which was that a lot of people suspected it was kind of projecting Western nuclear family uh, dynamics onto prehistory and, and onto um, contemporary uh, hunter-gatherer populations. So one of the responses to it uh, was an idea by uh, an anthropologist by the name of uh, Kristen Hawkes. And her idea was actually that big game hunting, at least, maybe not hunting in general, but big game hunting, um, is actually not about provisioning offspring. It is instead about showing off. It's a way that males uh, show off in order to attract the best mates and to attract more mates. Um, Now, more recently, there's been some really good work suggesting that basically that that neither of those options is the whole story. So basically, so um, Frank Marlow, for instance, who uh, he recently died actually, but he was an anthropologist who did some some really great research uh, with the Hadza of East Africa. Um, And also uh, Michael Gervin and colleagues, they've done a lot of research on this as well. And they both came to the conclusion that, that hunting in general, big game hunting is it's a bit of both. So basically, in some cases, it's used as a way to enhance sexual success. For, for young men in particular, that, that is the case. These kind of dangerous hunts are used as a way to um, uh, obtain mates rather than to engage in provisioning. Um, but provisioning is also part of the story. So, so it can, basically, it can enhance men's uh, fitness through both of those channels. Now, I think it's fair to say in the book, so, so in the book, I, I discuss this. I discuss uh, big game hunting uh, as one possible example of, of um, altruism as a product of sexual selection. Um, and I think that is part of the story for altruism, part of the story for big game hunting. I think what I didn't make sufficiently clear is that it's not the whole story for big game hunting. So I think um, – so, so I do have a footnote where I cite 
a bunch of papers that say that it's, that it's not just about um, it's not just about sexual signalling, including one of my own papers where I where I make the case that it's not just about sexual signalling, but it's actually also about um, provisioning uh, existing mates and provisioning offspring and other kin as, as well. So that would be my view on that. Mm, mm. So, um, Steve, would you like to? do a little bit of speculation about how humanity may develop in the future? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of new cultural, what kinds of new memes or cultural phenomena might come along that might change our, our genetics or vice versa? What kinds of, can you just do a little science fiction for me? <laughs> um, what, I, yeah. Uh... Yeah, where are we going? What, what does the future hold for us, right? Yeah. I, that, that's the question I dread. Uh, I find that <laughs> really, really difficult uh, question. No, no worries at all. Um, I actually I had a bunch of notes. I, I was going to say something. I was going to say a whole bunch more about that in, at the end of the book. Um, and you'll notice I didn't. I basically had a few paragraphs only on that mm, topic at the mm. end of the book. And the reason is that I was thinking, ah, man, I just don't, I don't have a clue. There are so many arguments, and I just I really don't know where we're going. And so I thought it would probably be wise if I just kind of stood back and didn't say too much about it. Um, and all I was willing to say was that I think whatever is going to happen, whichever direction we go in, it seems that the, the direction we're going in is that our species, through the evolution of our culture, is coming into possession of more and more power over the planet. Uh, we are putting ourselves uh, or our culture is kind of putting us into the driver's seat of the planet as a whole. And so whatever happens to our species and whatever happens to life on this planet and to this planet in general is becoming more and more a consequence of us and our evolving culture. And then I said the end. That's, that's the end of the book. And I didn't want to go further than that. Um, I'm really not sure. I, I guess... I tend to I err on the side of being optimistic rather than pessimistic about our future, but I only err a little bit in that direction because I just I really don't know. Mm. I think it's quite plausible that things are going to go well. I think it's also quite plausible that things are going to go down the tubes and that we're going to mess everything up. Damn. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope for the former. So is there anything that you have – that you would like to emphasize that I haven't given you a chance to say? Um, you mentioned in an email, you, you had a question about uh, mate preferences uh, and female choice uh, oh. and, and coercion. Yeah. Oh, yes. So this is something that um, Co Cody has worked on. So um, mm -hmm. there is um, – I think that there is a, a, a very kind of odd tendency among some people in EvoPsych, and you don't do this because you talk throughout about mutual mate choices. Uh, so sexual yeah. selection in our species is mutual. Um, men mm -hmm. select women, women select men. Um, and so both, both parties have sexual signaling and both parties can be um, evolved to meet the needs of the other. Um, and, but I, I, I have noticed there, there are a lot of kind of, um, more simplistic versions of Evo Psych, which as Cody puts it in which, um, 
when women do bad things, that's intrasexual competition. And when men do mm. bad things, it's sexual selection by women that, that caused it. Um, so women right. are responsible for everything that is bad, basically, um, in right. evolutionary terms. And also this, um, there's a, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on female mate choice. And there's also a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that in many societies historically and still today, um, women don't choose their mates. So it's, it, it seems really odd to place such a strong emphasis on female mate choice, given that, female, given yeah. that yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, I've got a few thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, in terms of everything being women's fault, <laughs> I think uh, hopefully that people who say stuff like that, I think um, not evolutionary psychologists, but rather people who, who kind of got the wrong end of the stick. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I think uh, there's a really good case to be made, very, very strong case um, that's been made by evolutionary psychologists like Martin Daly and, and Margot Wilson, that actually uh, intrasexual competition is notably more is notably stronger among men than among women um, and they point for instance to sex differences in, in homicide rates as one indicator of the fact that there's, there's a lot more uh, competition uh, for mates among among males than among females um, and, and also I would say that like if, if in the evolutionary psych literature um, if, if either sex comes off worse I would say it, it would be men so, so there are a lot of traits um, that evolutionary psychologists argue um, have evolved, and lots of sex differences that put men in a worse light uh, than they put than they put women, uh, and, and violence would be the perfect example of that, really, because because violence is a very um, unpleasant and ugly trait, and stronger in men than women. Um, now, until, yeah, okay. So in terms of female choice, yeah, I do think there is a tendency to overemphasize female choice, first of all, to overemphasize female choice relative to male. I think that we sometimes, evolutionary psychologists have done this as well, kind of mistake ourselves for peacocks. So, so in peacocks, um, the males compete for mates, the females choose. The males do all the competing, females do all the choosing. And I think some people have imported that rubric into their understanding of human beings. And I think that, that that's a mistake because I think that Things are not so polarized and not so black and white in our species. Both sexes compete for desirable members of the other sex. Both sexes, uh, sexes have species-typical mate preferences uh, that guide their mate choices. Now, in terms of in terms of coercion, so that's a that's a tricky one, and something I've, I've given some thought to. So basically, on the one hand, I do think, like I say, that we do have there's good evidence we have species-typical mate preferences. Uh, there is good evidence that there are evolved sex differences in at least some of these preferences. And there's good evidence, I think, that overall, that women in our species, just like females in, in many species, are choosier about their mates, especially in early courtship and for um, low commitment relationships. So I think, well, on the one hand, all of that is true. But then on the other hand, there is good evidence, if you look at the anthropological literature, that um, there, have been, there are often circumstances where people cannot choose their mates. Women in particular get coerced into different kinds of relationships. Um, so how do you mesh those two things? And um, I've got a few ideas about how those two facts about uh, human beings can be meshed. Uh, so, so just a few points, maybe three points. So first of all, 
looking at the anthropological record, there's actually there's quite a bit of variation in terms of the scope that women and men have in terms of choosing their mates. So one extreme, you do have societies where uh, men and women uh, just had no choice. Women in particular have had no choice about uh, about first marriages, for instance, and the, the parents and and uh, families decide, and, and that's just that. And resistance would mean, you know, you would be exiled or maybe even executed, like in particularly patriarchal societies. At the other end of the spectrum, though, you do have societies where there's really quite a large scope for um, the bride and groom to choose one another. Um, among uh, the Hadza, for instance, um, uh, of, tens, of, um, of East Africa, I believe they have uh, quite a lot of scope to choose their mates, the, the Muswo of China as well. And then, and then in between those extremes, you can find every different degree of coercion or freedom you care to name. Uh, you have cases where the, the parents choose, but the kids have the right of veto. The, the other places where the kids choose, but the parents have the right of veto, or they can postpone the wedding or, or whatever else. And, and actually, you get variation within societies as, as well. The Trobriand Islanders, for instance, uh, some you have infant betrothal among some individuals, but then others are relatively free to choose their mates. So that would be that would be my first point. So so in in the freer societies and in the freer parts of the sort of mixed societies, there's scope for people to choose their mates and therefore scope for mate preferences uh, to have an, a reproductive impact and therefore to evolve. My second point would be that um, in most of these societies where they have arranged marriages, it's only the first marriage that is arranged. Uh, so that is the case, for instance, uh, among the Kung San um, of the Kalahari Desert. Uh, Richard Lee details this. Um, he says, uh, points out that first marriages are arranged, but only around half of uh, first marriages persist. Half of them uh, end in divorce. Uh, and you can imagine that people's mate preferences uh, will, will, for a start, they kick in after that. So, so the bride and groom get to choose each other in subsequent marriages um, among the Kung um, among uh, other societies as well, like the Tiwi of Northern Australia, um, I, I believe the, the Trobriand Islands as well, subsequent marriages are chosen by uh, the principals to a much greater extent. Uh, and, and actually also mate preferences could determine how long the relationship lasts in the first in the first place. It can determine how fecund it is, how many offspring they have, and also whether it ends in divorce. And then another, one other point would be that even for first marriages, even, even for arranged marriages, it actually seems to be reasonably rare for, um, for for parents and and clans and families to just completely disregard the preferences of uh, the people involved, the bride and the groom. Like if they kick up enough of a fuss, uh, well, sometimes they'll be forced to, to do it anyway, but um, sometimes that'll be taken in cons- into consideration. And, uh, and again, um, uh, that's, there's, there's evidence for that in, in ethnographies of the Kong, for instance, by, by Richard Lee. Um, that doesn't always happen, but it can have an impact. And, and actually, one other um, one other point would be that even when kids have no choice about who they marry and they can't get out of the marriage later, there is still at least some scope for mate preferences to have a reproductive impact. Uh, could do so through premarital sex, could do so through extramarital sex. Occasionally, uh, you read ethnographies about uh, couples who elope to escape parental pressure. And um, so, yeah, so even though there is a lot of coercion, I think it's reasonable to think that mate preferences are part of the story. So, so I think basically mate preferences and coercion uh, are both, both come into play in terms mm. of understanding marital patterns across different cultures. Um, and the existence of coercion 
doesn't rule out the existence of mate preferences and the existence of mate preferences doesn't imply that humans have had carte blanche about who they mate with throughout evolutionary history. That they haven't. Mm. Yeah, and and you also, um, returning to the intersexual competition thing, you gave this wonderful um, explanation of why men aren't prettier. (laughs) Yeah. Why why women prefer, I would say on average, um, prefer more feminine looking men but men, most mm. men don't look that feminine. This is why pretty men are rare. We got yeah. we got screwed yeah. by evolution. Um, <laughs> because, um, both of us, right? Both sexes <laughs> did. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, because um, yeah, I, I thought yeah, you meant both. You. You're, you're the ones that have to look at us. For, for a moment, I thought you meant both of us, you and me <laughs> personally. But <laughs> <laughs> No, men and women in general, right? So, so <laughs> yeah. men have to cart around these ugly mugs, and, and women have me. to look at them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> because they were. It was meant to intimidate other men. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, so that's it's interesting, right? Isn't it? It's um two two reasons I think in the book uh, why. Women are generally uh, seem to be uh, prettier than men than dudes, um, and one of them is that um, so so on average it seems that that men have a stronger preference for physical attractiveness in a mate than do women, um, and and it's possible that because of that, in effect, men were kind of selecting uh, women to be prettier to a greater degree than women were doing the same thing. Um, so that's one reason. And the other one, yeah, it gets back to uh, intersexual competition, like, like you're saying. But maybe that's chicken and egg. Maybe we don't care as much because men aren't as pretty. True, true. And and I guess another possibility is it's kind of self-reinforcing. Mm-hmm. And and then, yeah, which is the chicken, which is the egg, I guess. Um, well, there are, yeah, I guess reasons to think that men would be selected for being less pretty, and one is this intersexual reason, right? Um, intersexual competition among men. Uh, the evidence there, the idea there, so this is from an evolutionary psychologist called David Putt. He basically argues that women's faces and bodies, um, to the, like the sexually dimorphic uh, aspects of them, the ones that differ from males, they've been shaped mainly by male preferences, but with the with the males, um, male bodies have been shaped more by competition among males for status and resources and ultimately for mates and sort of evidence that he provides for that includes the fact that ultra masculine faces and and deep booming voices and beards and all all these kind of things um they are more intimidating to men to other men than they are appealing to women you know, and they can be somewhat appealing to women, but it seems to be a stronger effect is the fact that they intimidate other men. So maybe that's the, the first step in the chicken and chicken and egg puzzle. Mm, mm. I was interested in this in um, um, this thing that you said about about memes, which I think is one of the things in your book that I don't probably don't agree with. You said, um, like genetic mutations, new me. New memes are not random in relation to their causes, which are the minds and intentions of the people who create them. Most of the time, however, they are random in relation to their own mimetic fitness. People rarely engage in creative efforts with no other goal than to create a meme that will survive and promote itself in the culture. And actually, I feel that people quite frequently um, try to just 
create a meme that will stick, that will go viral, as as we always put it. I see people doing that on Twitter all the time. Yeah, yeah, you may be right. So, so you reckon that in some cases that probably is their main motivation, right? Is just to um, not just write a song. So, so I think I say later in that paragraph, right? Um, people's goal isn't just to make a meme that goes viral. It is to write a song that captures a mood or, or a trap that catches a bear or whatever mm-hmm. else. Um, but actually, you are probably right. Actually, people do think I want to write a song and I want it to be a hit song because I want to make a whole bunch of money. Right. Or I want exactly. to make a movie and I want it to be a hit movie because I want to be I want to be rich. Yeah, so fuck art. Mm, they just want yeah, to yeah. Yeah, I just want <laughs> it to be famous. Exactly. <laughs> uh, that is that is probably probably true, right? So and to the extent that it is true, there's probably more overlap than I suggest in that paragraph between the what what we're trying to do when we create our memes and the selection pressures that are acting on those means. But, but I would say there are still certainly plenty of uh, occasions when we come up with memes where our goal isn't just to create a catchy meme, even though we certainly, we, we definitely do do that uh, sometimes. What do you think are the most common misconceptions about your field? Um, you talked, talked about one of the criticisms of your field is that it's um, uh, there are too many convenient just so stories. And you said that yes. adaptationism can be over-relied upon. That, I guess, is a fair criticism, but just um, to, it's a fair criticism of some aspects, some some people's work within the field. Do you feel that there are there are some misconceptions that you'd really like to clear up, some common misconceptions? Uh, yeah, so the just so story uh, allegation, I think that's that's not completely fair. I think um, even though I think it is fair to say that evolutionary psychologists, uh, myself included, no doubt, are sometimes too willing to accept an adaptationist explanation on too little evidence. Um, I do think that the idea that evolutionary psychology is just a matter of just so stories that, that I think is a misunderstanding and, and not completely fair because I think that um, any hypothesis before it's tested is a just so story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not unique to an evolutionary mod, uh, model at all. Mm-hmm. It applies just as much to sociocultural expecta- um, explanations as to anything else. Um, and there's, a, there's now a lot of research in evolutionary psychology. So whether the explanations are true or not, uh, even, even if they're false, it's not really fair to say that ones that have been tested are just just so stories. Mm-hmm. Um, another example would be the idea that evolutionary um, hypotheses are unfalsifiable. Um, and I think that that is, I think it's just not true. There, there are tons of uh, hypotheses within evolutionary psychology uh, that have been falsified. I personally think that the kin selection explanation for homosexuality is an example of that. That was, that was put forward, it's been falsified. And th- there are many others. I think the idea that women's preferences for different, for, for like masculine versus feminine faces, that those fluctuate over the course of the menstrual cycle and that that is a way of having a, a dual strategy where you have a long-term investor, but then you, when you're in the high fertility phase, uh, sneak off and uh, mate with a highly masculine dude with good genes. I think that idea was never really that plausible. The data were, were never really that good, but more recent, very good data um, ha- has falsified that view uh, mm-hmm. as well. And there's just there's a huge list actually 
of falsified evolutionary hypotheses. Well, hasn't not always hasn't easy. Hasn't half of psych been been uh, falsified yeah. recently? Yeah, the replication uh, uh, crisis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, social psych in particular has been struck quite hard by that. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, to be fair to social psychologists, I do think a lot of them are, are really, to their credit, uh, really trying to clean up their act. Yeah, uh, which is great. There's been quite a contrast between the way in which social psychologists have responded to things in their field not replicating, and the way people have responded to the grievance study sting. Um, that might. Yeah, well, very true. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the difference in response there is, is quite instructive. Um, in one case, it is, I completely agree. taking it seriously, and in the other case, this just defensiveness, demonization of the yeah. people involved, etc. Yeah, exactly. Um, just, just blowing off what is, you know, clearly a problem. Yeah. They, they clearly demonstrated a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably there's no such thing as chronotypes either. So I probably don't have an excuse for this rambling, the rambling nature of this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure that will get, I'm sure that will fail to replicate. Sure. Uh, I, I don't know. Let, let's say chronotypes are definitely going to replicate. So you, you definitely, have a, definitely have a reason there. Okay, thanks. Um, it's been so fun to have you on this podcast. And thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And um, have a lovely uh, week, everybody. Yeah, yeah, you, you have a lovely week as well. Thanks very much for having me on the show. My pleasure. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At Ariel, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ariel and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ariel A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.